Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Before we jump into the message, uh, I want to ask you guys to be um, uh, praying about something also. Uh, this uh, week is Law Enforcement Week in Washington, D.C., and uh, this past Thursday night they had the Officer Down Memorial Service uh, for the county uh, at First Baptist in Lenore. Uh, that's an annual thing. Uh, if you you know think to the week of the fifteenth, whatever week the fifteenth of May is, uh, every the Thursday of that week every year, uh, they'll have a memorial service. And uh, I, I guess I'm going to take it upon myself to promote it more in our churches, uh, to where more people will uh, come uh, and maybe get an announcement said through the uh, association. Uh, but it represents a, a time uh, to recognize officers that paid the uh, supreme price and uh, uh, defending us and uh, uh, their, their protect and serve cost them their lives. Uh, we have some of our officers this week that are gone uh, to D.C. where they had the event uh, up there. Uh, so just be uh, praying about that. You know, I, I'm thankful for what uh, law enforcement officers do uh, for us, and we need to uh, remember them in prayer, not just when that officer down week comes, uh, but uh, the rest, rest of the year. The... Um, series that we're in is entitled, Who's Your One? Um, we kind of are following up on a 15-week uh, uh, series that we did talking about Jesus, focusing on what Jesus has done for us. And in a way, I guess, as we are in this series, we're uh, three weeks now today into this series, we're kind of focusing on what we ought to do for Jesus because of, uh, of who Jesus is uh, and what he's done for us. The title of the message is, On Earth As It Is In Heaven, uh, you won't be able to figure that out probably till the end of the message. So uh, if you're ADD, don't be sitting there trying to think, why did he call it that? Why did he call it? Why did he call it that? Miss all the rest of the message. Because that will kind of pop in uh, at the end, if I remember to do that. Uh, but what I want us to focus on today is what it looks like to be a disciple. And we're going to be in, in Matthew 4. Uh, and we're going to look at the calling of Jesus' first disciples. And I'll read some of those verses in a moment. We'll start at verse 18 in just a moment, although I'm not going to go there just yet. I want you to think for a minute about uh, this question. What do you think of what comes to mind when you hear the word Christian? When you hear the word Christian? Because that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You could go up on the street, Andy Stanley, I think, said this. You could go up on the people and ask uh, 10 different people, uh, what does the word Christian mean? And you'll probably get nine different answers. Uh, you'll get some people that will say, if you ask them, are you a Christian? You'll have some people say, well, you know, yes, just right up front. Some people say, what do you mean? Because they even understand the concept of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, you'll have some people say yes and then qualify it, saying yes, but, or yes, I am, but I'm not like, you know, some of those Christians uh, out there. So you can get all kinds of different answers. So I want to kind of prime the pump of your mind just for a minute uh, by getting you to play a word association game with me just to kind of get you going in the direction of thinking what comes to mind, what comes to mind when you hear the word Christian. So uh, let me say a couple things and uh, don't call out what comes to mind. Uh, some of it might get ugly. I don't know. Okay. Uh, so just think about in your mind, 
When, when, you hear, when you hear this, Bernie Sanders supporter, what comes to your mind? Y'all did better than the first service. First service started laughing. I thought, what was, you know, what's up with that? <laughs> what about Trump supporter when that comes to, you know, what, what do you, I'm, you know, we're not trying to get respond, but just, just, you get a picture of something, don't you? In, in your mind. What about the, what about the word hippie? Now, all of you that are really young, you have no idea what a hippie is, and that probably means things have rotated around generationally to where you may be one in this day and time, and, and you just don't recognize that, that that's, that's who you are. What about Duke fan? If I say Duke fan, what comes to mind? Man, y'all laughed at that one. Or what about Carolina fan? I said I wasn't trying to get responses. But, but I just want you to think through something to understand, you know, when I said those things, something came to mind. And, and regrettably, when you use the word Christian, sometimes something will come to mind. Some people might give you this picture or definition of a Christian when they think about it. Christians are judgmental, homophobic moralists who think they're the only ones who are going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everybody else is going to hell. Now, there are Christians out there that fit that definition, regrettably. Andy Stanley also said this, and I'm not going to be quoting Andy Stanley through the whole message, but he also said this. He said, I think we lost some clarity in who we are as followers of Christ when we transitioned and we started using the title Christian instead of the word disciple. Because originally, Christians did not refer to themselves as Christians. Matter of fact, it was in Acts chapter 11 at Antioch where they were first called Christians and it was a derogatory term. It was meant not to be bragging on them. It meant little Christ. But the way they were saying it in Antioch was, well, you, you're just running around acting like little Jesus, like little Christ. So it wasn't meant to be anything positive in, in that moment. But somewhere along the way, we adopted the title Christian because to me, being a little Christ is positive. Amen. If we can somehow be like Jesus, but we adopted that term and we quit talking about being a disciple. So the, the second thing Andy Stanley said was this, we would have a lot more clarity in who we are because we gave something up when we started using the word Christian instead of the word disciple, title disciple. Because disciple is really clear, at least it should be. Disciple might be terrifyingly clear to you after I finish with a message today. So we're going to talk about what it looks like to be a disciple by looking at the calling that Jesus gave to his first disciples. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. And then we're going to pick back up in, in chapter 4 in a minute. But uh, hey, we're not doing this lately. Stand with me in honor of God's word while we read uh, Read these verses, verse 18 through 22 to start with. While walking by the sea, he, talking about Jesus, saw two brothers. Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Doesn't that seem a little bit strange to you? Just instantly, they're willing to walk away and, and follow him. They left their nest and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James' son of Zebedee and John his brother, 
in the boat was Ebony, their father, men in their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So well, you can be seated, guys. Once again, that seems a little bit strange to me. I mean, picture yourself in that scenario. You're out doing your job, and somebody walks by, and they say, follow you, and you just all of a sudden drop what you're doing, and you leave your family, and you take off following this person that gave you the invitation to follow them. Now, that sounds really strange until we look into the background. So kind of put your minds on hold for a minute. We'll be going back to Matthew 4 in just a moment. But uh, it'll be a little bit clearer for us, help us understand maybe why these first disciples were willing to walk away from everything and follow Jesus if we understand the background of what was taking place. See, in that day and time, every five-year-old boy would enter something called Torah school. And in Torah school, they would study the first five books of the Bible. And when they would bring them in and they would start their studies, they would also do this. As they were reading to this group of five-year-old boys from the book of Genesis, the first five books of Genesis where they'd be reading to start with, they would walk by these boys who would open their mouth and they would drop a bit of honey on their tongue. Now, you've got to factor this in also. Most of those boys were poor in that day and time. Many of them had never tasted honey. So the sensation of the sweetness of the honey was kind of flooding their senses for a moment. And as that was taking place, they're reading them from the Bible. Which the implication they were trying to teach is this. The word of God, what we're reading to you, ought to be sweet to your life. Can we get an amen on that? It should be. Then about age 10, there would be a a, a cut or a weeding out, so to speak. And at age 10, all the ones that didn't make the grade, all the ones that didn't make the cut, they were kind of kicked over to the curb a little bit. They weren't allowed to continue going on in Torah school, and they were sent home to do whatever their family did for a living. Fishermen, shepherds, whatever it might have been. They were sent home to do that. They weren't allowed to continue in school. Then those that remained from age 10 to age 17, they studied the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament. At age 17, there was another cut. And at age 17, they're finished up with their school, almost like you graduated high school, but they've been studying the Bible the whole time. And if they wanted to continue in their religious studies... They had to find a rabbi that would be willing to bring them underneath their umbrella and continue to teach them. So what would happen, those 17-year-old boys, after they got out of Torah school, they would think about what rabbi they'd heard the best stuff about, what rabbi they would like to teach them, and the way they would submit themselves would be to go and sit at the feet of that rabbi. Kind of give you a picture of what we ought to do with Jesus. And they would sit at the feet of that rabbi, and then the rabbi would ask them questions and decide whether or not they would let that person become their Talmud, was a word that was used. Rabbi simply means teacher. Talmud simply meant disciple or follower. You see, the rabbis in that day and time could be really, really selective when they chose who would follow them, Because the culture is completely different. In in our day and time, when little boys grow up saying, I want to be a professional baseball player or professional basketball player or rock star or something like that, 
None of those things existed back then, but even if they did, the culture was different. What all the young boys dreamed of in that day and time was this. They dreamed of growing up to be a religious expert. They dreamed of growing up to be able to be a rabbi, to know things that other people didn't know about the Bible, to be able to <coughs> teach other people and, and, and lead them. So that's why those rabbis could be really, really selective in who they allowed because all those 17-year-old boys are going out looking for a rabbi, sitting at their feet, answering questions, seeing who would let them follow them. You see, the rabbi wanted to be really, really selective because whoever their talman was, whoever their disciple or their father would be, would be a reflection of that rabbi. One of the highest honors you could give a rabbi or a follower of a rabbi, a Talmud that day and time, would be when they would say this to them. The dust of your rabbi is all over you. Which meant this. You look like your rabbi. You talk like your rabbi. You act like your rabbi. You do the kind of things your rabbi does. And and you can just see your rabbi all over you. Man, wouldn't it be great? I'll come back to this later in the message. But wouldn't it be great if people could come up to us and say, I see the dust of Jesus all over you. I can tell you're a follower of Jesus because the, the way that you live your life and, and the things that you do. Because a follower of a rabbi would do all the things that the rabbi would do. They would model the rabbi. In that day and time, there was a, a special form of rabbi that was really rare. And they were referred to, they were referred to as a rabbi with smaka. Now, that almost sounds like you call somebody a bad name, you know. Go up to somebody this week and tell them you have smaka, and they might slap you. You know, you, they don't know what you're saying. The name smaka meant authority. It's what it meant. So, so in that day and time, in the day of Jesus, there were rabbis out there that were considered to have this high degree of authority. They, they really, really knew the Bible. They could interpret the Bible. They could give people interpretations of the Bible. Sometimes they could give interpretations that no one had ever heard before, but they were viewed as masters of the Torah. It was a really, really exclusive club. Now, let me bring all that back to where we were. Now you have Jesus walking by, not running by, but walking by. <laughs> and then now they're walking. And as Jesus is walking by, he tells these people to follow him who at age 10 didn't stack up. At age 10, got kicked to the curb, so to speak. They weren't allowed to keep going through Torah school. They never even made it to the point to where at 17 they could look for a rabbi. They had been left out completely. So Jesus comes by and extends a call to them. Do you understand maybe why they decided to follow Jesus now with that background? Pick back up in Matthew 4. Before I do... Matthew 7, verse 29 said this about Jesus. They were amazed because he taught them as one with authority. If you remember Jesus at age 12, what was he doing? He was teaching the religious expert things, correcting them things that they had misinterpreted about the Bible at age 12. So you've got Jesus who was considered a rabbi who is oozing with this smaka, with this authority, 
who comes by and extends this call. Jesus is all the time saying things like this. You have heard it said, but let me straighten you out. Let me tell you. Matthew 4, 23 through 25, right after Jesus calls the disciples, he takes them on a ministry tour. He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus, this rabbi that's just oozing with authority, comes by and he calls these guys that had been kicked to the side, kicked to the curb, hadn't been allowed to go and follow a rabbi. Now this rabbi that they have heard about because of the things Jesus had been teaching and saying, this rabbi walks by and he tells them, follow me, and they jump at the chance to follow Jesus. Do you understand more now why they did that? Can I ask you two questions before we get into the main part of the message? Have you jumped at the chance to follow Jesus yourself? And if you have, are you doing the ministry type things that Jesus wants you to do? Because these guys jumped at the chance and Jesus instantly took them on a tour, showing them the kinds of things, the kind of ministry that he would do, that he wanted them to be about. So that being said, let's try and learn some things about what it means to be a disciple from those verses in Matthew 4. Number one is this. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chose the willing. All of us ought to be willing to rejoice in that because none of us are probably the best. Amen? And Jesus didn't just look for the best. He, he was looking for the willing. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, it tells us in verse 18, the first part of verse 19. He sees his two brothers that were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Not the type of people you'd expect him to call to be his disciples. And he said to them, follow me. He didn't choose them because they were experts in religion. He didn't choose them because of their ingenuity. He didn't choose them because of their talents. I think Jesus chose them because he, being God in the flesh, saw something in them everybody else had missed. He saw their availability. He saw that they were were willing. See, Jesus did the opposite of what we would expect. Instead of Jesus choosing the why nots to be his disciples, he chose the whys. Do you understand what I'm saying there? The why nots would mean they're so talented, like the scholars in Greece or the historians in Egypt or the rulers in Rome that they would be so talented had Jesus chose them to follow him and be his disciples, everyone would say, yeah, why not? Because look who they are. That's not what Jesus did. Instead, Jesus chose the why because Jesus chose people that were so common to follow him. It's almost laughable that Jesus would choose them to be his disciples and follow him. He chose fishermen. He chose a tax collector among those he chose to follow him, not who you'd expect him to call at all. Instead of Jesus choosing the A-team, you see, when our basketball team goes to the Olympics, they call it the A-team or the D-team. We're we're trying to get the very best we can. Instead of that, Jesus chose a B-team. It might be the Z-team. That's who he chose to follow him. You say, here's why. Here's why I think it's going on with that. 
Had Jesus chose people that had all this ability, here's what people with ability tend to do. They tend to trust in their own ability. They tend to trust in their own ingenuity. So instead, Jesus chose people that did not have anything to trust in within themselves because Jesus did not want them trusting in their ingenuity. Jesus wanted them to trust in him. Jesus wanted them to trust in his power, what he's going to do through them. It wasn't what they could do. It wasn't the giftedness that they had. Jesus wanted people to follow him that would make themselves available to him. That's why Jesus chose them. Jesus taught that his power in the weakest vessel was infinitely greater than the greatest talent apart from him. Here's how he kind of brought that home to his disciples. Look at Matthew 11, verse 11. He said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one, catch this guys, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus is kind of saying this. It's like Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is my all-time favorite preacher. There's no one being born of woman that's any greater than he. But the weakest, the, the least in my kingdom, those who are spiritually born into my kingdom, those have much more ability than he does because they will have my power active in their lives. See, John the Baptist, all the great things that he did... In that day and time, in that what we call theologians call disposition, uh, in, in, in that day and time was, was this. The Holy Spirit came up, dispensation, I meant to say, <laughs> disposition. All the, uh, all, the, all the people in the Old Testament and up to the New Testament until the Holy Spirit began to dwell believers, the Holy Spirit would rest upon them to equip them for purposes. But the Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell in John the Baptist because the Holy Spirit had not been given that way at that time. Now in our dispensation, every believer, the Holy Spirit of God comes to indwell them. You might not have thought of it like that, and you may have a hard time putting it in your mind, but according to Jesus, you have more potential than John the Baptist. Because the Holy Spirit of God is living inside your life. He, he said the, the least in the kingdom of heaven. Some of you might think, hey, I think that's me. Because I think I've got the least talent. I've got the least eloquence. I've got the least ability. I've got the least spiritual gifts. And, and that must be me the pastor's talking about. And, you know, God in heaven might, right now might be saying, hey, it is you. You know, I don't know. He may be saying it's me. But the truth of the matter is that's okay because God isn't choosing to use us based upon who we are. He's choosing to use us based upon our ability to be a vessel to him. Not the ability and the talents that we have, but he's choosing us based upon our availability. Guys, it's not based upon your talents. It's not based upon the abilities that you have, but it's based upon the availability that you have to serve Jesus, your willingness to say, I will serve Jesus. I, I hate to bust your bubble, but Jesus didn't choose you because you're Mr. or Mrs. Super Spiritual. You were a sinner, you were lost. He didn't choose you because of that. 
He he chose you in spite of who you are because he being God sees things in you that no one else might see. And one part of being a disciple is recognizing that he didn't choose the best. Instead, he chooses the willing. Your Your awesomeness, if you think you have any, comes not from your ability, your power. It comes from his power in you. The question is not how able are you. The question you ought to ask is how available are you? How much are you willing to let Jesus use you? Because that's what a disciple is. It's somebody that makes themselves available. In other words, we can kind of drop our excuses. I don't know if I can reach my one. That's what we're talking about in this series, Who's Our One? I don't know if I can reach people at work. I don't know if I can change the heart of a family member that needs to trust in Jesus. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do that. I I can go ahead and fix that for you. The truth of the matter is you cannot, I cannot, and it's his power in us, not our ability. Amen? Does that help a little bit? So number one, he didn't choose the best, he chose the willing. Number two about being a disciple is this. He chose us, not we him. Once again, going back to our story in Matthew 4, verse 19, the first part of the verse, he said to them, follow me. Verse 21, as he's continuing walking along with these two new disciples that are following him, he comes along and he sees James and John with their father in a boat, men to their nets, and he called them and he said, follow me. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. All I explained a minute ago in the background ought to to help us understand this. Imagine these first disciples that had been kicked to the curb and not allowed to continue in school. Imagine the confidence It gave them that Jesus, this rabbi with all kinds of authority, is calling them to follow him. Imagine the confidence, guys, it ought to give us. Jesus, if you know Christ is your Savior, he has called you to follow him. Imagine the confidence that ought to give you because in spite of what everybody else might think about you and how the world might make fun of you and how you might get put down, if you know Christ is your Savior, you've got this confidence in you. The God of all the universe chose you. So no matter what anyone else is saying, you could say, yeah, but he saw something in me. Let me illustrate it for a minute. What if you were out somewhere playing a pickup game of basketball and all of a sudden Coach K or Coach Williams walks by? I know you've got your preferences. And looked at you and said, man, I see a lot of talent in you. And then the next week, someone comes and makes fun about the way you dribble, the way you shot, looked, and everything else. But in your mind, you could be telling yourself, yeah, but they, Coach K thought I had talent. Coach Williams thought I had talent. Greater than that is this. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He chose you. You you didn't choose him. He chose you. He invited you to follow him. And guys, he started the process before you were even born. He saw you in eternity past. 
And he loved you in spite of who you were, in spite of the things you would do. He saw you in eternity past and he knew that he was going to extend an invitation to you. He was going to choose you, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, but he was going to choose you. He decided to love you in eternity past. That ought to fill us, if you know Christ as your Savior, with all kinds of confidence to win our one to Jesus, to do whatever God's calling us to do because of the fact that he called us. Let me read this again. He said, I, you didn't choose me, I chose you. But he said this, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. He didn't just call you to be a Christian and say, I'm on my way to heaven. He called you and he's given you an appointment as a believer to go. And he's given you an appointment to bear fruit, eternal fruit that's going to last forever. And that fruit can be a lot of things that we can do for Jesus. But I would suggest for you the ultimate most important fruit that any believer can bear is to bear another person to Jesus Christ, is to bear a lost person to Jesus, is to lead that person to Christ and disciple them because when they become a believer, they become eternal, everlasting fruit and that fruit will never disappear. It will always remain and they'll be in heaven with Christ for all eternity and God used you to reach them. He's called us and he's appointed us that we should go. That's why we're asking the question in this series, who's your Who's your one? And before you start making more excuses, let me read to you some more verses. Philippians 1, 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's talking about our salvation, but I think it refers to more than that. Those you lead to Jesus, guess what? They're going to remain forever. He's equipped you. The work that he wanted to do in you, he will bring it about to completion. First John chapter four, verse four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So no matter whoever your one is, you may have written down a name already and brought it to the stage last week. Whoever your one is, no matter how difficult you think it's going to be to win them, no matter how mean spirited they might be, no matter how possible you might think it may be for you to win one to Jesus, guys, here's the truth. The one that is in you is greater than the one that's in the world and he can equip you and empower you to win your one to Jesus. You've heard me read this several times over the years in Ephesians 2, but it tells us this in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. God made us. He created us in Christ Jesus. He didn't stop there. Keep reading. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the Bible is saying God predestined, he predetermined, he has things that he wanted you to walk in that he planned before you were ever born. Isn't that amazing? Guys, it's kind of like this to illustrate it. It's like the Holy Spirit is our travel agent. And you're getting ready to go on a trip. And your travel agent goes before you. And they make this appointment and this plan for your trip. And they line everything out for you to where you know what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. I think the Holy Spirit superintends our lives like that. Whether you know it or not, I think the Holy Spirit has put you in a relationship with some people that need to know Jesus. You've got some friends in your life right now that need to know Jesus because God planned that in eternity past. 
He's got some things he wants you to do for him. He already knows. He knows who your one is. And he wants you to be willing and available to him to be used to reach your one. Number three this morning. What does it look like to, to be a disciple of Christ? Our primary call, number three, is this. Our primary call is to follow Jesus or be with him. And I think that phrase, be with him, brings a little bit more clarity to what we're talking about. We've already read this several times. Matthew 4, 19, he said to them, follow me. This is the third thing about being a disciple. First, he chooses the will and not the best. Secondly, he chose us. We didn't choose him. But, but thirdly, to really follow Jesus and really be his disciple means that we're doing what Jesus does. See, the word follow means to be in the way with. So guys, it's not just that we say we're followers of Jesus, that we say we've trusted in Jesus, that we say we're disciples of Jesus and he's our Lord. It's this, for us to really follow him, it's you and I being in the way with him. We're, we're, we're hanging out with him. We're trying to be more and more like him. We're, we're asking him to change our lives and, and transform our lives. And I think the neat thing about this, when Jesus called them, he only said, follow me. He didn't tell them where they were going. He didn't tell them everything they would face. He didn't let them know three years down the road that they're going to be so discouraged because the one that they thought would be their concept of the, of the Messiah had been crucified and buried. He didn't tell them of the elation that they would have on the other side of it when they saw the risen Lord. He didn't tell them how they themselves would lose their lives as they went out and spread the gospel and stood for Jesus. He didn't tell them all those things. He simply said, follow me. And guys, I love that because here's the deal with that. That means we trust him enough to follow him wherever he leads us. We don't have to know on the front end. Because we have enough faith in who he is that we're going to follow him wherever that leads, whatever that means, we're going to follow him because we trust him. He didn't have to give us an agenda and let us know everything that's going to happen to us by following him. He just told his disciples to follow him. And I think here's why. He said, follow him. He didn't say, go do this and go do that. He said, follow him because his primary call in our lives is not to do something. His primary call, listen to me, it doesn't mean you don't do anything. Don't, don't factor that in. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. His primary foundational call to us is to follow him and just be with him. To fellowship with him. To spend time with him. To be praying, to read our Bibles, to, to be in fellowship with him. Because you see, like all those other rabbis, who those rabbis wanted their followers to look like him, Jesus wants us to look like him, but we don't know what that looks like unless we're with him, unless we're reading about him, unless we're doing the ministry type stuff that he calls us to, unless we're hanging out with Jesus, we don't know what it fully looks like to really follow and be with him. Now, I don't have time because of the, the message today. I don't have time to go into this in, in great detail. But that also kind of means this. That means whatever opportunities God provides for you to become more and more like Jesus, you ought to take avail of those opportunities. We do an 830 service and we do a 1030 service. 
That, to me, means most services, most Sundays, you can make one service or the other, even if you're teaching a children's class. You go to children's class in one, worship the other service. We do a Facebook live feed of our 1030 service that's going out right now, I guess, as far as I know, unless we've had technical difficulty. But we don't do that so you can stay at home and just watch it. This is not the same. We do that when you can't be here. We do that for people that have never been here. That maybe they'll hear the message online and come to Christ or decide to, to come and visit and, and see if God has something for them here. We, we do that to where even if you're here and you're trying to remember something later in the week that you feel like the Holy Spirit's wanting to use in your life, you can go back and you can listen to it. You can review the message. We offer things like Celebrate Recovery on Friday evening where people can come and receive help there for, for challenges that they're going through in, in their lives. We offer a men's ministry and a women's ministry. We offer small groups, our life groups. And guys, if you're not in a life group, you're, you're missing something. If you're not being faithful to a life group, you're missing something because God wants us to do life together with, with each other. We do special studies like the membership classes that talks about first steps and growing steps and serving steps and, and sharing steps. We do specialized training from time to time like Financial Peace University. I hope maybe we can, can pull that off and uh, you can have it sometime this summer. We, we are doing something called G3 Discipleship. I just finished leading a small group that met on Tuesday nights through the G3 Discipleship study. I, I led our staff through it. I've been through it four times now. And I'm just telling you, if you get an opportunity to sign up for G3 Discipleship, it'll take you about an hour for 11 weeks to do it, but it will give you more clarity in what it means to be a disciple. I'm just suggesting that those things that we offer are things that you need to avail yourself to. You need to be taking care of your own life spiritually. You need to be reading the Bible. You need to be praying. You need to be involved in in doing ministry to others. Jesus said, follow me. And that means we're modeling Jesus even in ministry. Like I said earlier, in in Matthew 4, verse 23 through 25, you read back over that again. I'm not going to read it all right now, but look at all the things he was doing. He took these first disciples more or less on a ministry tour, on a missions tour, and he was teaching them, this is what I do. This is what I want you to do. I want you to be engaged in ministry to other people. You'll never get enough in your life spiritually. You'll never become a mature Christian just showing up on Sunday. You need to be feeding yourself and you need to be feeding somebody else and helping other people. And if you're not, you're going to be not at the level Jesus wants you to be in your discipleship life. Number four, we need to do this. I'm going to remind you of what I said earlier. I think you need to keep it in your mind over the next few weeks. Wouldn't it be great if someone come up because of we're following Jesus and we're ministering like Jesus and somebody said, I see the dust of your rabbi Jesus all over you. Number four, what does it look like to be a disciple from here in Matthew 4? To fully follow Jesus, we have to leave it all. In other words, Jesus has to be first. Not second, not third, but first. Look at verse 20 through 22. Immediately. Did you catch that word when I was reading it earlier? Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And when he came along, James and John, and they're there in the boat, was up to their father, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. 
Guys, to fully follow Jesus, you're going to have to leave some things behind. The Holy Spirit, for some reason, chose to point out two things that are central in our lives to address here. The boat represents your vocation. You know, what you do for a living. You see, that ties up a whole lot of our lives. The father there in the boat represents family. The the relationships that we have in life. You see, those two things I think are highlighted by the Holy Spirit because those two things represent two really significant things in our lives. The boat is your career. Your your father or your family would be the most significant human relationships. And I think what is taught there is this. It's fine to have a career. It's great to have family. But Jesus is illustrating, and the Holy Spirit is illustrating by the immediacy of them leaving those things to follow Jesus this. Jesus must be first. He must be first in our lives. Not your job, not your hobbies, not your parents, not your children, not anything else. Jesus needs to be first. And it may cost you some things for that to happen. See, that's where people get hesitant. You mean if I decide to lock, stock, and barrel follow Jesus... I'm going to have to walk away from my vocation. I'm going to have to move somewhere off to Africa. I'm going to, I'm going to have to do this or do that. I'm not saying you have to do that. That depends on God's call upon your life. But you may have to do it. You may have to leave family. You may have to change locations. When God was dealing with me about preaching and my mom, I, I mean, I started talking different, acting different. I, I hope that's what I'm supposed to do. You know, that's what we're supposed to do as believers, right? And mama had all the good intentions in the world, but she was just concerned about it and everything. So she pulled me aside one day and she said, well, I know all this is going on with you, but, but she said, be careful and don't become a fanatic. So I looked up the word fanatic and I went back and told my mama, mama, I don't think I can help but be a fanatic. That just means you're sold out to Jesus. And she didn't like it a couple years after I'd pastored local and Bethany had just been born that, that God moved us to Rocky Mountain, North Carolina and I pastored Church Erica so I'd take off and I'd leave with her two grandchildren. Jared hadn't been born yet. She didn't like that. I kind of hated leaving too but it's where God sent me. Then God brought me back up here to to this county and into this area. So I don't know that it will cause you to go somewhere else or change careers or change location. But I am telling you this, Jesus has to come first. And if that's what he calls you to, that's what you have to do. Amen. April this past week, April Johnson, her dad passed away. She had answered the call to be a missionary in Africa. She had been away. She, she was home when all this happened. But guys, sometimes when God calls you to something, you, you, you just have to go. You have to put him first. Look what Jesus said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, now, Jesus is using a shock factor there. He, he wants to grab our attention. What do you mean I have to hate all those? I have to hate my family. I have to hate my parents. I have to hate my wife. I hate my children. He doesn't mean literally hate them. But when you look at comparatively speaking, your love for Jesus needs to be so strong and so much that he comes first. Because he calls us to follow him. 
And to fully follow him, we'll have to leave some things behind. For some of you to fully follow Jesus, you're going to have to maybe leave behind some pet sins that you've tried to hold on to all these years to keep recurring. And, you know, yes, you've trusted Jesus, but you kind of got this going over here in the dark recesses of your life, and you think nobody else knows. He does. To fully follow Jesus, you may have to temper and reel in some all time-consuming hobbies that you have. It's always been interesting to me over the years how somebody can say, I don't really have time to read my Bible and pray or, or go do this or go serve somehow in the church or do this and do that, but you've got this all-consuming hobby that you see them involved in all the time, and yet they don't have time to do the most important thing. If you find yourself talking all the time about whatever your hobby is that you love so much and, and that's what you talk about and that's what you post online and everything else, you might need to check up on yourself. Maybe you've let something else become your God and be more important to you than serving Jesus. Amen. Fifth thing is this that we can glean from Matthew chapter 4. Last thing, what does it look like to be a disciple? We need to recognize he didn't choose the best. If he did, he wouldn't have chosen me. <laughs> he wouldn't have chose you. He doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. He chooses us to follow him. He chose us. We didn't choose him, and he, and he wants us to follow him. In order to do that, we'll have to leave some things behind. But I want you to see a very strategic thing that Jesus says here that I think maybe we don't let be as important in our lives as it should be. And that is, in order to be a disciple, Jesus commands us to spiritually reproduce. To spiritually reproduce. That means you're reaching your one. That means you're reaching others. That means you're trying to disciple people in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus said this in verse 19, follow me. He didn't stop there. Follow me and I will make you. You may not be there yet. You may even think you've not made the first step in that direction. But part of following Jesus and part of being a disciple of Jesus is this, follow him. And as we're following him, we need to allow him to make us to transform us, to turn us into fishers of men. He didn't call you just to know you're going to heaven. He didn't call you just to show up at church on Sunday morning. Jesus has called you to be a fisher of men. He's called you to do what he does. He's called you to fish for other people like Jesus would fish for other people. Jesus was all the time fishing for people as he would engage people and walk through the communities. He was all the time looking for people he could reach out to. And guys, we come up with all the excuses about our time. I understand that. But be honest for a minute. We're all the time fishing for something, aren't we? You're fishing for material gain. You're fishing for fame. You're fishing for whatever the world says important. People are all the time fishing for everything under the sun. Jesus says, if you're going to be his follower, if you're going to be his disciple, a dynamic of that, a proof of that is this, that you are 
fishing for the souls of men. That you're allowing Jesus to make you into a fisher of men. That's why we must have challenges like who's your one? Because you might have thought when you first saw the video and you first heard me talking about who's your one, you might have shrunk back a little bit and you thought, man, that's that's abnormal. That's asking for more than what we're supposed to do. No, it isn't. That's asking for exactly what Jesus told his first disciples to do, to be a fisher of men. It's being a normal Christian, not being some supernatural Christian. It's a normal Christian for us to be fishers of men. God expects us to be on mission for him. Jesus expects us to follow him and to make disciples. And he's given us his fishing net to use in this world to try and reach others. He expects every believer to spiritually reproduce And when we do so, it glorifies God. Look with me at John 15, verse 8. I've had people ask me before, how can I do something that God would be pleased with? Now, before you push back and say, well, we can't glorify God because God is inherently glory. That's true, but we can increase the perception that other people have of the glory of God. John 15, verse 8 says this. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Told you earlier that could be bearing fruit in a lot of ways. But fundamentally, you cannot deny the fact that part of bearing fruit is a fish for men and win them to Jesus. Let, Let me illustrate that. I grew up in a part of Wilkes County that's considered apple country. In the, in, the, in the poor snob community. Um, people used to misunderstand that. Did you say you were a poor snob? No, I was, but, I, 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 but in the poor snob community. There's apple orchards all over the place there. And you have these people in Washington State saying our apples are best, these apples are best, whatever. Remember the picture of the little boy, and I'm saying how old I am, and if some of you remember it, you're going to say how you, you, how you are, of the little boy biting an apple, red delicious apple, smiling. Remember that picture they used to promote selling apples? That was from Wilkes County. So I'm telling you where the best apples come from, okay? I've been out in the woods hunting before and walk out into an apple orchard, and if I walk over to an apple tree and the you know, uh, early fall and everything. You know what I expected to have? Apples hanging on. And I could pull one off because I was thirsty, didn't have anything to drink when I come out of the woods hunting and bite into that apple and, you know, get the juice from it. Guys, here's, here's the point. An apple tree grows what? An orange tree grows what? A peach tree grows what? A Christian grows what? It ought to be naturally who we are. That we make disciples, that we grow disciples, that we bear fruit for the kingdom of God. It ought to just be who we are. It's how we prove to ourselves and even to others that we're really disciples of Christ. So who is your one? Have you written it down and laid it on the stage yet? Who is your one? And if you have written the name down already, if you have it during the invitation time, come and lay it on the stage. But if you have already laid a name down saying who your one is, can I ask you this? Are you casting a net? 
Do you have a rod in your hand or your bait in your hook? Do you understand how you need to try and reach that particular person? Because guys, the truth of the matter is we're all individuals. And for you to know how to reach people, you need to spend time with them. You need to know stuff about them. Go back to a fishing illustration for a minute. If you go deep sea fishing, you don't use the same bait for deep sea fishing that you use for mountain trout fishing in the streams. Different fish takes different bait. Different human beings take different bait. They wrestle with different things. Their lives are different. And we have to learn how to engage them in the right way. Aggie was here at the first service and she came up after the service was over with and she was crying. And she gave me a note and she said, what you said is so right about how we try to engage people and everybody being different and how we need to bait the hook and how we need to reach them. She had taken her daughter for chemotherapy treatments in Lenore. And they drew her blood and they ran some tests and everything like that and a nurse told him she was going to die. And the nurse said, with family standing around, please talk to her about Jesus so she doesn't burn in hell for all eternity. That wasn't the right bait on the right hook in that moment. Was that true? Yes. That's not the way you go about it. Jesus commands us to spiritually reproduce. So who's your one? Do you know who it is? Can I ask you another question? Are you you in right now a discipleship relationship with someone else? Someone you're trying to disciple, help them mature to be more like Jesus. Have you ever, ever, ever been in a discipleship relationship with another person? Now, let me stop because I know that hurts. And here's why it hurts. Because based upon stats, probably 90% of you that are in here this morning have never tried to disciple another person. And maybe you've never even won anybody to Jesus or tried to win anybody to Jesus. And right now you feel really bad about that. Don't let Satan keep you in the past is all I'm saying. Amen? Change that. Start being in a discipleship relationship with other people. Start telling other people about Jesus. If you were to ask me what is God's plan for day three to reach this community or this pocket of lostness we've talked about, can I start out by telling you what it is not before I tell you what it is? Us trying to change this community and reach Granite Falls for Christ is not me preaching louder and more times. It is not just us having more outreach events, although there's nothing wrong with us doing outreach events, and we should do them, but that's not God's primary plan to reach this community. It's not us doing more on social media or broadcasting our services more. That's not God's primary plan to reach in this community. 
God's primary plan is you. You're his primary plan. God's primary plan in us reaching people and changing this community and changing our world is you. God's plan is for you to be willing and available. That's what his plan is. God's plan is that he's chosen you. You didn't choose him. God's plan is you following Jesus. God's plan is for you to leave some things behind and put Jesus first in your life. God's plan is for you to be a fisher of men and spiritually reproduce. God's plan is for you to answer the question, who is your one, and then do something about it. Can you imagine what the impact would be if somehow... Every person at day three church started discipling other people. If every person at day three church would just answer the question who their one is and do everything they can to reach their one, potentially that could be about 300 people come to Jesus before December. And if God leads them here to our church home, that means we could double in attendance. And guys, we don't need to double in attendance to say day three has doubled in attendance. We need to do so because it's simply what God wants us to do. To make disciples. So I told you, don't worry about the title of the message till we got to the end of it. Because you're thinking, he's not said one thing about it. On earth as it is in heaven. That's something Jesus prayed. you remember that in the Lord's Prayer? Can you think of any time, think about this, is there any time in heaven that the Father's will is not being perfectly done? The answer is no. We're supposed to be praying on earth as it is in heaven. That includes you and I making disciples. That includes us following Jesus better. That includes us answering The question, who is our one? Because we want his will on earth and it is in heaven. Is it his will that the lost would come to him? Sure it is. I can show you a Bible that says that. But the question is, what are we willing to do about it? Would you join me in prayer? Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.